You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Earlier in the show, we talked about the role that track runners Tommy Smith and John Carlos played in calling attention to racial injustice during the 1968 Olympics when they raised their fists in the air on the medal podium. The lesser told story is about the third person who was on the podium that day, a white man from Australia named Peter Norman. He stood in solidarity with Carlos and Smith. It was a subtle kind of solidarity, but it came with some pretty major consequences, including sanctions from the Australian government that were not lifted until after he died. His gesture was so significant to Carlos and Smith that they served as pallbearers at Norman's funeral. What does it mean to be a white ally in the fight for racial justice? How can white people be better allies in that fight? Dr. David Camp is a native of Detroit, and he brings his workshop related to white allies to the Northwest Unitarian Universalist Church in Southfield on Saturday. And joining me now is Dr. David Camp, as well as Kimmy Regal, who is the head minister of Northwest University, University, Unitarian Universalist in Southfield. Uh, Dr. Camp and Kimmy, both welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. It's yeah. great to be here. Uh, I, uh, Dr. Camp, I'm going to start with you. This is a pretty difficult subject to deal with for a couple of reasons. One is I guess, the white side of things, right? Uh, white people, uh, I think, face a, a particular challenge in figuring out how they can be of help to African-Americans when they when they feel sort of common cause with them. The other side of this is the black side of it, where I think there is a natural suspicion uh, to some extent of of whites who who may want to help and and again a, a, a discomfort with the whole idea of how we negotiate those things. Uh, talk about how in your work you overcome the challenges on both sides. Sure. So one of the things we see nationwide is this discomfort you're talking about, and um, and all sorts of discussion on social media about what white allies should do. And that's understandable because of the history of folks getting credit for movements, et cetera, that, that were really about other people. But what we also see is people saying, you need to go deal with your community. You need to go back to your community. I think even Stokely Carmichael, Malcolm X used to say, you go back home and deal with your folks. Right. But we don't give guidance about how to do how that. How do you do that? We right. don't give guidance about how to do that. And in fact, the... Uh, modeling we do of how to talk about these issues might be the opposite of what's needed. When people um, have a same perspective about racism, they think racism is a real issue, they talk about it in ways that are different than you might need to talk about if you're talking to people who don't believe that. My reading of the polling data is that about half of white people think racism is a real thing and about half do not. So white folks are split. And the, the problem is, or one problem is, is that the, when white folks who believe racism is real, when they, they, they go to meetings, they talk to people of color, they talk about the issue in ways that, are, that, get, um, that rile them up, that, that energize them, that are valuable. But that is uh, perhaps the wrong way of talking about those issues when you're talking to what I would call racism skeptics. Mm -hmm. You have to have a whole different approach in talking about it. And so the White Ally Toolkit is about probing people's existing wisdom about what they found, but moreover, to bring the best of cognitive science, what we know about the arts of persuasion, 
in order to that those engagements be much more effective than they are. Yeah. And I my my sense is that people of color are less anxious about how white folks do that. They we just don't deal with that. Y'all need to go deal with that. We don't give them guidance. <laughs> this project is precisely about giving guidance about yeah. that. Uh, talk about the sort of the humbling requirements, I guess, that uh, you would assign first to white allies uh, of, of of the struggle for racial justice, but then also maybe to African Americans about about accepting that and and being o- okay with it. One of the things we know from um, cognitive science and the arts of persuasion is that if you're going to be persuasive to somebody, you have to first listen to them. You have to try to build rapport. You need to go past having them tell their position and really talk about their experiences that drive their position. Well, that means you have to listen to a little bit their position and then their experience. (laughs) What we're used to uh, in progressive circles in general, in social movements in particular, is to slam people, is to wait and to wait for the, the first wrong thing they say and then <laughs> and edu- jump on them and right? educate the heck out of them about the long history of white supremacy <laughs> or the long history of this oppression, et cetera, and hit them with facts. And it turns out that that is not the way to persuade. It turns out there's something called the backfire effect, which is what happens when people feel that their worldview is under attack and they just defend it. And that's true not just about racial issues. So the, so the humility you're talking about has to do with you have to stop, take some deep breaths, do whatever you need to do to be in a listening mode, and then tune into where they are first. Build rapport before you move forward to talking about your own experiences around, around issues. So part of what we do in the workshop is to actually have people think about experiences they've had that, are, uh, that they can tell stories about that can connect with the skeptic first. And then other experiences that will expand their view. Well, that's a whole different approach to interaction than I'm gonna just tell them like it is. Like, that's a whole that's a whole different <laughs> way of going about it. And so that's why it's a workshop that is not just a speech, me talking, but it's really people listening to me a little bit, interacting, connecting with their own stories, doing a little writing, practicing telling stories. So it's a, it's a very uh, dynamic process we use and engaging and people always say I can't believe how that much time went by I, I, I thought we just got started because it's so interactive. Yeah. Uh, Kimmy Regal, yes. head minister of Northwest Unitarian Universalist in Southfield. Talk about why it's important for your church to be hosting this kind of conversation. Unitarian Universalists are um, always in, in action about social justice issues, and racism is a huge social justice issue. So this just fits right in with all of the other aspects of our faith tradition. Mm-hmm. So um, we're just delighted that there's going to be a workshop to help us get better at what we are already trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's important that we be able to have those conversations with our friends and our family that will necessitate some skills that we need to develop and to learn. And so we're grateful to have the opportunity to learn those skills. And you've got people running from their, running from uh, uh, picnics at picnics at uh, July 4th and and, um, holidays, running from Thanksgiving because they don't know how to have that conversation. If all you know how to do is argue with people, then the Thanksgiving dinner will turn into an argument. But if you know how to to, to, to pivot to a conversation about experiences, you have a whole different um, way of connecting with your family members, with your friends, but still pursuing the issue. 
Yeah. Does this look different in your congregation than you imagine it does in the sort of general public? And I mean, oh, it, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, we we tend to be um, fairly liberal, um, inclusive as much as we can. And so that's something. We're, but that's not to say that everybody in the congregation is comfortable with these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so this is a chance for us to expand what we already are good at to becoming even better at it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Campton, I'm, I'm curious about the reaction you get from people when you when you when you go into a situation and, and try to get them to do this. Resistance is the word that I'm mm-hmm. sort of thinking of. Uh, how much of it do you do you see? Um, in our workshops, our workshops, of course, are designed for people who, broadly speaking, are allies. Yes. So you don't have who think of themselves in that who way. Think of themselves and, and, and in a broad way. Some some at, at we did a, a meeting in Harrisonburg, Virginia. We had about forty five people, and we I use audience polling to poll the audience at various points. And about half the people had been to a white ally meeting before, before and about half had oh. not. So that was a, that was a good thing. So w- what we're getting is people who by the marketing of the event, who think of themselves as allies in broad terms. Um, so you're not getting the skeptics in the room. But what people report is that they have rarely had a conversation about strategy mm-hmm. uh, before. So they find, it, um, they find it practical, because I try to make everything very practical. They find it energizing, because people say, I didn't know so many people in my community cared about this. <laughs> or, and then when I, of course, I tell them that I've done this in Pasadena, and I've done it in Oakland, I've done it in Virginia, and, or done it in Princeton. And people say, I didn't know there was a whole movement like that. So part of, I think, what happens is that people recognize that it's, it's not just me struggling with my family or struggling with my cousin Tristan or whatever. It's a lot of people are doing that. And, and the, what's energizing for people is to, is to just know that other people are struggling with this, that, that there are techniques. People, people often they, they touch, they get in touch with their own wisdom about what to do, which they're not, they're not necessarily connected with because they don't have a focused time to think about how, what works and what doesn't work. So, yes, I, we, I give content. Um, and I've, I've been doing dialogue work for 25 years. But, um, but I also give people a chance to extract their own wisdom in the room because, for example, the things that are happening in Detroit might be different than those that happen in Oakland. Sure. So, so it is important. So the ways that racism come up comes up is different. And so it's useful to hear what are the things you say, what are the things you don't say to try to move the conversation forward. Yeah. Uh, since last November, let's say, uh, I would imagine that that the tone, perhaps, of the things that you're hearing is a little different. I mean, the tone of every conversation we have about race in particular, but but lots of other uh, so, social issues has changed, I think, pretty fundamentally since that time. I'm curious what you're, you're seeing. No question about it. We see, from, we see some polling data that um, last year, before the election, about uh, 46% of um, white Republicans thought that discrimination against blacks was a major issue. Mm-hmm. This year, it's about 32%. So what we have- A big swing. A big swing. So what we have is, among the white population, on the one hand, you have increasing support for Black Lives Matter and increasing hardening and skepticism at the same time. Huh. So white folks are split. <laughs> Kimmy, y'all are split. I know, and, we're and we, working on it. And, 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 and the whole point of this project is to get people to stop avoiding going to Thanksgiving dinner, to stop avoiding right. talking to their cousin, and say, we, we can talk about this. But they have to have a long-run view. They have to have a strategy. They have to have some 
uh, tactics that work. They and they have to not not think that they're going to do. It's not a one-time thing. You're not going to talk to one person and change them. Right. You have to. My feeling is that allies who are serious have to have like a long-term commitment to you know every year I'm going to try to affect three people and I'm not going to do it all at once right. and it's a, it's a that's part of the ally work now that you know they need to think about how much they want to go to rallies and how much they want to give money and how much they want to do other things but they also need to think about who are the white folks in my sphere of influence that I can impact and how might I do that in a strategic way you know Historically, there's often this sort of dark period where things get worse and then things get measurably better because of it. And I think uh, because uh, it, it forces people, I think, to, to, to think a little more deeply about, about things. Do you, do you feel like we're in that kind of a moment where things are going to emerge on the other side better? We can be hopeful that that's what we're doing and that, that there will be some progress made. I certainly know that within the Unitarian Universalist circles, we have suddenly, because we're kind of blind and, you know, starry-eyed, <laughs> we've suddenly realized that this is a huge issue that continues not only within society but within our church, within our national denomination. We have racist behavior that goes on on a daily basis, and we need to address it. So having it out in the open... It's sort of like lancing a boil. You've got it out in the open. It, we can talk about it. My hope, my wish, my desire is that this will be the beginning of a much bigger change. 67 was an opportunity for change, and we really didn't do anything we went with it. backwards yes. a little bit uh, after uh, that. Sometimes even more than a little bit backwards. But, in fact, six years later, uh, we elect Coleman Young as, as the first African-American mayor of the city, and... A lot of things change uh, for a while. For a while, and 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 that I guess that's an example of the sort of dark period being followed by something you might not have imagined was even even possible even before. Possible. Yeah. See, I think that the but part of what I think uh, needs to happen is that we need to think more seriously about what dialogue means, right? So part of what I think we've done is we've relied on folks like you and the media to have our dialogue. And that's important to that's do, an but we also need to think about how do we really spread dialogue to, to people. So we need, we, we need shows like yours to do the good work you do, to have um, Republicans come on and talk about how, race, how much is racism real, not necessarily with, uh, with maybe one progressive on there, but among each other. Like, when, for example, last year when the alt-right was, we, we see people in the alt-right in the White House. We need to have a discussion among conservative folk, like how much racism is a problem, right? That, that like with, with Paul Ryan saying things like, this is a textbook definition of racism talking about uh, Trump's comments. Mm -hmm. We need that discussion among the people who are not normally in the race conversation and not necessarily being attacked and being defensive, but rather doing their own discussion. And, and the media is important for that. But we also need everyday folk to have a few concepts of dialogue and to bring that discussion to each other around the picnic, around the dinner table, <laughs> et cetera. And I, my hope is that if we do that, then we can turn this negative, this downturn in, in race relations to something positive, but we have to um, be more serious about what dialogue means. Yeah.
Yeah. Okay, Dr. David Camp, public speaker who specializes in issues of race. Kimmy Regal, head minister of Northwest Unitarian Universalist in Southfield. Thanks for being here. Did we tell um, people? Did we, we tell people when, say, the, when, when is it's it Saturday, Saturday at, at what time? From twelve to four. Twelve to four. And our address is two three nine two five Northwestern we'll Highway. We'll have a great time. They can go to the WDT Facebook page and get those details. Absolutely. Right. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you for so being much. Here. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will too. This is. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.